0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Talk Junkies, where tonight's going to be a very interesting night, very exciting night for Talk Junkies. This is uh, something that has, the subject that we're going to be talking about this evening is something that's fascinated me for a very long time. Uh, Jesse and I kind of briefly talked about it a little bit last week, not really hardcore, but we did talk about meditation. But we're going to get into something very extremely exciting tonight, and no better guest to bring on than someone who has 40 years experience in this realm of, a lot of people don't know what the realm is, but he's also... Uh, written a few books as well. Uh Andrew Holick. Did I say your last name right? I'm sorry.
1: It's actually Holichek. but it's, it's a sorry. Not, not even close. Paul. Not even close. Yeah, no worries. It's a very common mispronunciation, but I'm I'm good with virtually anything. Yo dude would work. Oh, well, I meant to there
0: ask you, you in the in the pre-podcast, man. I'm sorry about that. No, but.
1: no, it's all good. It's all good. No worries.
0: But uh yeah, we got your book right here. It's very uh interesting. Right now I'm I'm just reading a little bit into it. I know a lot of people uh in in America don't know a lot about lucid dreaming. And right to have someone on the podcast to have this type of conversation, I think it's very important because I think in reading your book, the benefits of lucid dreaming are tremendous and outstanding and people really don't know about it. And that's the craziest part. And I don't understand why it's not trending on Twitter, trending on Facebook, trending in all these places. I don't know if it is or not, but I don't think it is, but let's dive down to the the origins of lucid dreams. I like to bring it back as far back as possible um, within your research. Sure where have you kind of found the origins or where does it kind of show where it started in, in civilization?
1: Yeah, good question. Uh, well, first of all, maybe let's just define it real quick and then, and then we'll, we'll go back to it. So in sure. my cartography, my mapping, maybe we can run in this larger direction. Uh, lucid dreaming is actually one of five, um, what I call, um, nocturnal meditations. So there's five of them. Um, just in Just an order, the first one's called liminal dreaming, then there's lucid dreaming. <clears throat> dream yoga, sleep yoga, and what's called bardo yoga. But, but lucid dreaming is, is, is kind of the, the big boy right in the middle. And it's basically this really magical um, state of consciousness, sometimes called a hybrid state, where the conscious mind can actually meet the unconscious mind directly. And basically, it's when you're, you're in a dream and something will clue you into the fact that you're dreaming and you're actually awake within the dream. Um, And until it was scientifically proven in 1975 by Keith Hearn in England, and then 77 by Stephen LaBerge at Stanford, scientists said, hey, this is an oxymoron. You can't be awake and dreaming at the the same time. But it's been proven unequivocally for, um, you know, 40, 50 years at this point. In the West, uh, lucid dream accounts go as far back as Aristotle. Um, In the East, it really dissolves into the kind of the mists of ancient Indian history um, you will find accounts of it in, in, in the Upanishads, the great Indian um, mystical texts. You'll find it in the um, Bun tradition, which is the indigenous tradition of, of Tibet prior to the influx of, of Buddhism. You'll find it going back thousands of years B.C. So it's hard to pinpoint exactly where it came from. Um, you know, shamans, shamanistic tradition, lucid dreaming is, is kind of standard fare in, in that kind of trajectory and the shamanistic tradition even predates most um, religions as we know it. So in short, it goes back a very long way, but it didn't really gain traction until the scientific community got its mitts on it. And since then, it's really taken off uh, because, you know, they can now measure with uh, EEGs, fMRIs, there's all, all kinds of ways they can do really interesting, sophisticated studies. And we can talk a little bit about some of what they're actually measuring and why it's so compelling. Um, but one of the reasons it hasn't really taken off uh, is that it's not that easy to do. You know, the the benefits is maybe we can talk about are unbelievable, um, and that's one reason I think it's important to talk about this stuff because when people realize what's actually available to them every night, you know, you actually you're sleeping quite literally on this vast untapped natural resource. That uh, once people start to realize more and more what the amazing benefits are, then they'll be more interested in, in taking up the actual practice. So, you know, in relatively short order, that's kind of the origins as far back as I've been able to trace it.
0: Fair enough. And and I've kind of, I've, there was a point in time whenever I first discovered what lucid dreaming was. I think I was in my early 20s. And I've always been fascinated about dreams. And and to go back further into your book, I think it's interesting that you you suggest, or I, I think that there's probably... Um, science behind it, that kids lucid dream when they're at the age of three. I think that's crazy. I, I'm not, huh. not like in a bad way, but in a good way. Cause my daughter is like three and a half, almost four. So tonight before the podcast, I asked her, I was like, what do you dream about? What do you, you know, I was like, I was like Phoenix, you can control your dreams. And she's not, she doesn't understand, but yeah, 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 <laughs> trying yeah. to tell her to, but anyways, in my twenties, you know, that's when I discovered it. And I was like, man, I really, really want to do this. And uh, Jesse and I have talked about it a little bit back and forth. And oh. it's just one of those things that you have to uh, stay at and you got to do it day in and day out for a long period of time. It's not something you can just do for a week and then just pick it back up a, a month or a year later.
1: Yeah. You know, it depends on how, how uh, constant you want to get at it. Um, people will have hit and miss results. People will have serendipitous spontaneous lucid dreams without any practice or any training, but you know, it really, it's just like anything else. It's like learning how to play the, the piano or become proficient in any sports activity get out of it what you put into it and and that's the really good thing is that it is something that you can actually exercise there's um, a wonderful array of both daytime and nighttime practices both from the east and the west and that's a lot what i write about in my most recent book now is that through like meditation actually exercise the kind of muscles the the cognitive uh, awareness that's really instrumental in, in having these types of dreams and that's really important because these are uh, lucid dreaming is absolutely something you can learn, um, and you know I've been doing it for decades, almost have it at will whenever I want, um, and it's not because I'm special. It's just because I've done the work, and uh, it, it develops in a, in a quite organic way, once you realize the kind of network of factors that are involved in bringing about lucidity, and and that's the kind of approach I bring, is that some people have specific kind of targeted apparatus, certain supplemental agents can help, like lantamine, certain induction methods can help. But in my experience, both personally and, and teaching this stuff for decades, is that if you draw a really wide lens, you know, really look at all the factors that come into play to bring in lucidity, then it can be kind of a divide and conquer approach. You know, you can work at it and tease apart all the factors that bring about lucidity and therefore make it, you know, part of a, your nightly regimen. Um, so
0: so did it come like really easy to you when you first started doing it? Because I know, you you know said- it
1: actually did. It, it, I think just like with any other um, endeavor, certain people just have talents for dreams. And I've always had an extremely rich dream life. And once I first, you know, I, I before I even heard about lucid dreams, I, I was having them spontaneously. And, and even to this day, I mean, some of the most impactful events of my life have occurred within the realm of the dream space. and, and, this is where it's worth throwing into the mix a little bit the spectrum of lucidity. You know, that you can have really short. I call them dreamlets, really short um, micro lucid dreams. That actually these kind of hang out in the arena. What's called liminal dreaming. Liminal is a, a term that means threshold, set space that we all doze in and out of. You know, when we're lying down to go to sleep, but before we go to um, to sleep and dream, we're kind of drifting in and out. That's a liminal space. And so, with liminal dreaming, you can have these really short uh, dreamlets that last just a few seconds, all the way to uh, uh, dreams, lucid dreams that last over an hour when you're in uh, what I call primetime dream time. And then you can also have you know, lucid dreams that are like barely lucid. You think you're aware of a lucid dream, but not totally, to what I call hyper lucid dream. And hyper lucid dreams are the real game changers because those are the ones that. You wake up from one of those puppies and you know those dreams are more real. They seem more real than this, than so-called waking reality. So if you have a hyperlucid dream that lasts like an hour, I mean, you can do some amazing things. Um, and one of the reasons to engage in the practice is that, especially according to the kind of the wisdom traditions from the East, the, the practices that you do in the dream state are actually more efficacious and transformative than what you do in the, in the waking state because you're dealing more with the tectonic plates of your experience, of your mind. You're working with the roots of your experience. And so in, according to the ancient tantras of Tibetan Buddhism, the practices that you do in the dream state are seven to nine times more um, effective than what you do in, in the waking state because you're working with such foundational principles of mind. And the literature is replete with this stuff that people well, literally, it's a little bit like a, a, I've never had a near-death experience, but it, it sounds very similar where you don't have to have a near-death experience over and over to have it change your entire life. Well, why is that? It's because these NDEs, these near-death experiences, are so foundational. They're so irrevocable that one experience can change the course of your life. And, and I've had hyperlucid dreams like that that I count is really among the most majestic experiences of my entire life. And that's one reason I get so passionate about this. And I I like to shout from the soapbox because if people really start to, uh, realize what they have available to them, it opens up an entire new arena of education or, or or pedagogy. And, And we can talk more about this later. Um, I, I actually argue that lucid dreaming could represent the pedagogy of the future because, you know, we, we, Scientists estimate we enter the dream state about 500,000 times during the course of a life, of a lifetime. Um, 25% of our dr- uh, sleeping space is relegated to the dream. That amounts to about a month a year. That amounts to about six years out of an average life. I mean, you can get a PhD in less than six years. And so, just imagine, literally, uh, imagine what you can do if you ha- if you literally added six years of consciousness to your life, and not just regular watered down waking consciousness. We're talking about distilled forms of awareness. And and this is where things get really, really cool because anything you can do in in the waking state, you can do in the dream state. And using the the neurological principles of what are called neuroplasticity, you guys probably know about that. You know, what you do with your mind changes your brain. Um, Same thing, you know, when you work with your mind in the dream state, because what else is a dream made of? You know, a dream is made of your mind what you do with your mind actually changes your brain in the dream state. And just to give you one quick example, they, they've done studies where if you're in a lucid dream and you're, um, for instance, I'm a pianist, um, I'm practicing the piano in my lucid dream, my right hemisphere is activated exactly the same way as if I was doing it in waking life. Your brain can't tell the difference. Uh, if I'm doing a logical problem or some kind of mathematical, mathematically related uh, pr- uh, thing in my dream, my left hemisphere is activated exactly the same way as if I was doing it in waking life, and so there's there's some scientific traction to this stuff. It's not just metaphysical mumbo jumbo anymore, and there's a lot of studies uh, over the last couple of decades that are coming out that are really pretty compelling about the, the just the uh, outrageous advantages of maintaining lucidity. And lucidity really, it, it, for me, it's like a code word. For awareness i mean well, a, a lucid dream is an aware dream and like what doesn't benefit with more awareness i mean if there's a curative ingredient it's awareness so when you're working with your with lucidity with awareness in the dream it doesn't just stay tucked underneath the blanket of darkness it works in what's called a bi-directional way the insights from your dream will actually feed back into your life and this is super important to say because Yeah, lucid dreaming is cool, it's like, you know, it can be like a really awesome video game, virtual reality kind of thing. But this is where lucid dreaming, by the way, transitions into dream yoga. Um, Lucid dreaming is fantastic in its own right, but it does have certain limitations. Dream yoga, you know, transcends, but includes lucid dreaming. It goes much farther. And so the reason I toss this into the mix is that fundamentally, if it's approached properly, lucid dreaming leads to lucid living and I can give you some very specific examples of how that works, because a lot of people, and the reason I'm I'm riffing on this is a lot of people go, "Oh, geez, like, why bother? You know, my life is already so full. My my my, my sleep is so precious. Why should I bother with these so-called nocturnal practices?" Well, if you understand what's really going on and the way the mind and the brain works, you may want to be bothered, so to speak, because you're um, otherwise passing over just a tremendous opportunity to engage in in. Um, psychological and spiritual development so that's why i get so jazzed about it
2: there you go uh i uh one thing i wanted to ask you about was um as far as because i i take melatonin this is gonna be like my first question i got to get out of the way is there any like because i i typically i have crazy dreams not not it's not like it induces like lucid dreaming or anything like that but i definitely feel an enhancement as far as the vividness of my dreams Huh? And even being able to remember my dreams from melatonin—is that like something you know that you recommend to people, or?
1: No, not really. No, uh, not really. Um, m- melatonin is fundamentally—it's uh, they call it the vampire hormone or the Dracula hormone because you know it only comes out at night. And and actually, classically speaking, and again, these are idiopathic agents, which means they work um, idiosyncratic. They work differently with different people. I generally don't recommend melatonin outside of reestablishing circadian rhythms when you're traveling, in other words, jet lag, that's fundamentally what it's designed for. If it works for you um, to augment dream um, life, go for it. But it's traditionally not recommended in the world of lucidity. There are other agents that are, for instance, galantamine. There's a number of studies and I've actually participated in these um, double blind placebo controlled studies where uh, galantamine has been proven um, statistically to have a, a really powerful increase in clarity of dreams and therefore onset of lucidity. But melatonin isn't generally recommended that way. It's, it's, and I'm an Amer- a member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I work with it in my clinical practice. And um, I generally don't recommend melatonin as a sleep aid. It's again, it's, it's more circadian um, adjuster. But because we're all different, some people, really roll with it and then that's great you know our biochemistry is different or the way our minds work is different but as a general rule of thumb that's not an agent that's generally recommended for for lucidity
2: it's just uh so like with with my job being a server like i would have to be up really late at night and then i'd be wired and couldn't go to sleep so melatonin was something that allowed me to still be able to go to sleep and then almost readjust to like like normal time for like my days off as to where i'm not doing that so is that kind of yeah, like that's great. That in that regard,
1: again, especially if you're doing it, it doesn't sound like you have any sleep disorders. But, you know, um, sometimes these things are best kind of monitored with a sleep physician. But if it works for you in that regard, um, you, you know, there's no overt harm in that sort of thing. It's just that it's that's not its general target. But again, it's one of the cool things about individuality of the mind and the brain is that we all have particular patterns and we don't have to all abide by simple um, similar kind of principles so is,
0: is glantamine is that what, is that how you say it is that like a type glantamine, of, is that yeah. like a type of like uh like sleep aid that you take um it's or... not a
1: sleep aid no glantamine is pretty cool it it, it it goes back actually to the time of odysseus the, the greek god of or the hero of um, memory and it's a phytonutrient um uh, which means it comes from you know organic um, flowers and the like, snowdrop, lily, and and uh, it has you know a, a kind of an interesting pedigree, organic pedigree. And um, what galantamine does, it's it's, um, it's a, a, a what's called a nootropic, which means it's a cognitive enhancer. In its prescription form, it's used for things like Alzheimer's and dementia. Um, in the world of you know over the counter, dreaming. The way it works is when you are in the REM space, so there are two types of dreams, non-REM dream, I should say non-REM sleep, when you're mostly early part of the night, that's when all the res- restoration is taking place, human growth hormone is released, all the restorative processing healing takes place. And then there's what's called REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep. We mostly dream when we're in REM. And when you're in REM sleep, uh, a particular neurotransmitter called acetylcholine is in high concentration. And so what galantamine does, a little bit nerdy scientific data, but galantamine works to inhibit the breakdown of, an, um, of uh, acetylcholine. And, and so what happens is that, uh, that particular neurotransmitter stays in high concentrations when you take this agent. And therefore, it doesn't automatically bring about lucidity. Um, but what it does do is, for many people, is it makes dreams longer and clearer. So it it makes lucid dreams in that other usage of the term lucid. In other words, you just have clearer dreams. And because the dreams last longer and they're clearer, because this neurotransmitter is in high concentration, you have a higher likelihood of recognizing that you're dreaming when you're dreaming. And again, when I did these studies, you know, one night um, I was given uh, nothing, placebo. The other night, four milligrams. And then the other night, eight milligrams. There was no question i mean i could tell absolutely positively when i was given the eight milligram things i you know I just my whole night was just filled with these amazing hyperlucid dreams um, so it doesn't work for everybody but i have used it in my own programs and it's pretty darned effective it's relatively safe you know there's some standard disclaimers on it, it shouldn't be taken with uh, for people who are pregnant um, have any kind of intolerance to these sorts of things. Super, in all that, I've probably given it out a couple thousand times. I maybe had one person come back with slight gastrointestinal distress. Super safe agent um, and it works, but that's not the only one. There's a bunch of other ones. It's just galantamine is the one that has the most traction. It's the one that's been studied the most. And I, I don't put all my eggs in that basket, but um, it's part of the weave, like I was talking about earlier, of approaches and agents that can be used to bring about lucidity. There are other electronic gadgets that can do it, but you know, really, and we can talk more about this l- later. Um, you mentioned at the outset the, some the connection between this and meditation. The single most important thing, especially from an Eastern induction approach, is um, actually the practice of meditation, because meditation is the practice of lucidity. But I'll pause and come back to that if you want to go up. No, that's,
0: that's, so two things on that. Uh, The first thing is, uh, just reading upon lucid dreaming, uh, sharp cheddar cheese, for some reason, comes up a lot uh, to help induce uh, lucid (laughs) dreams, or just dreaming in particular.
1: Yeah, and and go figure, you know, you have uh, agents that... um, work with tryptophan enhancing tryptophan it's amino acid um certain kinds of fish i mean there's all kinds of anecdotal data about this and they in their books that tout these agents there's a number of books that tout them but there's very few sophisticated legitimate scientific studies and so a lot of this kind of anecdotal stuff comes from people who've just had cool experiences that write about it and i'm not dissing it but i'm saying it's not scientific right um, I'm just so looking- that's why galantamine is the one that's been studied over and over again by a number of different really reputable scientists. And these other agents work, but also with some people, galantamine does nothing. So right. you know our biochemistry is different. We all have different kind of setups, both uh, neurologically and psychologically. So yeah, it's not just it's not just. Um, there's got to be
0: a, there's got to be like a common ground though. You know what I'm saying? Like just for the average day person, like in America or wherever you may be, I'm just looking. Obviously, like looking into lucid dreaming and understanding what it is. And like you said, you don't have to necessarily take a whole bunch of different stuff to induce it. Like it mainly takes your mind like you talk about. But if there is something that you can take like glantamine or like sharp cheddar cheese or dairy or whatever it is to help maybe experience your dreams more vividly, that helps induce lucid dreaming. I'm just kind of looking for something to maybe just tell the average person like how to maybe, you know, further the process of lucid dreaming.
1: Oh, my gosh, there's so much to say here, my friend, you know, this is this is just one kind of dietary approach, you know, then you have and again, I I will just ping out some things and then you can stop me we can go any direction you want here. But one of the most important things is really good sleep hygiene. We can talk about that, like, you know, um, what to avoid. Um, There's super interesting things to do and not to do in that respect. this is um, good sleep hygiene, both from the Western scientific approach and also from an Eastern approach then you have you know the like i alluded to earlier um the the power of working with lucidity principles during the day through practices like meditation that to me and again studies have shown and it really so cool i've been in these studies as well meditators have more lucid dreams period and in the mind of a meditation master this may seem outrageous but in the mind of a meditation master all their dreams are lucid there's no such thing as a non-lucid dream So then you have all the Western um, daytime induction techniques, specific induction techniques, um, mnemonic induction of lucid dreams, dream initiated lucid dream induction methods. There's just, there's a vast array. And this is what I really like to talk about because we live in a wonderful information age where we can cross-pollinate technologies and information knowledge, both from the East and the West. And again, relatively recent, this stuff in the West compared to the East. Um, every wisdom tradition, and, and, and I've interviewed a lot of people on my own podcast, um, you know, scholars, meditation masters, f- literally from, from every religion, Hinduism, Christianity, Islam. Islam has its own majestic dream yoga, Judaism, uh, Hinduism, Buddhism. It's actually below, it flies below the radar um, in all these great, great wisdom traditions. And so, um, and maybe you can direct me where you want to go with this. I draw on all these streams and then conjoin them with my own personal practice. And then also in the, the programs that I do kind of trying these things out with seminars and the like. And so I have, you know, 40 years of experience in terms of what really works and doesn't. So there's so much to talk here. I'll, I'll, I'll just pause for a second and see which one of these you want to explore.
2: One, one thing I wanted, I know I'm almost kind of going back a little bit with this, but I would mm-hmm. almost think that an empty stomach would be the best because it's still, um, I'm probably saying it wrong. Dimethyltryptamine that's taking place, which is a chemical, which I've dabbled with some psychedelics back in the past, and it's always more potent on an empty stomach. I don't know if that works differently for dreams, yeah. but that's, yeah, that's for almost... Sure. For
1: sure. Yeah, DMT. Yeah, for sure. And this is why, interestingly enough, in, in many, um, again, wisdom traditions, like for instance, in the Buddhist tradition, the last meal is lunch. They don't take hard foods after lunch. And, and so there are reasons for this kind of dietary approach, brings a heightened sense of clarity and lucidity for sure. Um, postural positions, you know, they've done very interesting studies. Sleeping on your right side um, is more conducive than sleeping on your left side. Sleeping sitting up is more conducive. And so again, there's so many different ways. And, and this is my approach is like, you know, let's let's try all these puppies. Let's bring them all together. And then sooner or later, what will happen is you will find your own sweet spot. Unless you're someone like me who teaches it and, and kind of needs to know about all these different methods. The point isn't necessarily to master all these methods. The point is to find your own sweet spot. Um, usually you'll bring across these different techniques and something will speak to you. And you'll go, ah, that's my ticket in. You know, lucidity is the point, not the technique that gets you there. And so when I write these books and I and I toss out 20, 30 different types of methods, it's basically so people can do, they can survey and they go, oh, that sounds interesting, let me try that. Oh, that sounds interesting, let me try that. But with that said, there are two or three foundational techniques. Uh, Intentionality is colossal, attitude is super important. Dream recall, super important, that can be cultivated. And again, working the lucidity muscle through practices like mindfulness, meditation, incredibly foundational. So, and if you do those, and on top of that, you add some of these other different kind of um, trajectories of lucidity, in a very real way, non-lucidity doesn't stand a chance. Um, and that, I toss this out because some people go, geez, well, you know, what do I really need to do this? Well. You need to understand the principles of how the mind works, how lucidity and also non-lucidity works. Um, and the reason I throw this into the mix is that whether we know it or not, this is a humbling, revelatory proclamation. One of the main reasons we're still non-lucid at night is because we unwittingly practice non-lucidity all the time. I mean, we are. Another word for non-lucidity is distraction, forgetfulness, and we. You know, I mean, we're distracted all the time. A non-lucid dream is a distracted dream. And so again, if you work with things like memory and um, meditation, things that in- increase uh, that kind of capacity of the mind to be present, then that type of proficiency naturally extends into the nocturnal mind. You know, it's like what the great poet Kabir once said of death applies to dream. You know, what is found now is found then. So we're not lucid at night because we're not lucid during the day. We're distracted constantly. So when you're working with memory, uh, which is actually what meditation literally is in, in the Tibetan language, that is the word for meditation is drempa, which means to remember. So memory is a muscle you can exercise. In the Western arena, this is uh, undertaken through what's called a practice of prospective memory, remembering to do something in the future. So you, you engage in these infrastructure practices, uh, increasing dream recall, intentionality alone, attitude, and working with enhanced memory. I mean, it's just a natural consequence that you're going to start to have lucid dreams at night, and so that's really important. It, it kind of takes away the mystery behind this. There's real logic, uh, science behind, you know, both lucidity and non-lucidity. And so, once we understand that, whether we know it or not, every time you capitulate to a distracted thought, which you know we do this thousands of times a day, every time we drift away into distraction, that's actually a moment of the unconscious practice of non-lucidity. We're capitulating to non-lucidity. And so you, you know, you correct that with mindfulness practices, recollection practices, and guess what? That's the practice of lucidity. So that's really important because it demystifies this practice. It makes it logical. It's like, hey, now I get it. Now I see why people who, who work with these cognitive um, practices actually have more lucid dreams. It just makes so much sense.
0: I think, like, the, the most, like, important thing to me about that is is when – like you said whenever you're three whenever you are three years old you're able to start lucid dreaming or at least that's what maybe studies say and you're able to do it then so why not continue the progression of that whenever you're that age and yeah. my biggest question to you is and I'm not trying to turn this into any kind of conspiracy at all yeah but, but for the fact that meditation and, and, and lucid dreaming really isn't taught in schools at all in the in, the, in our Western culture or here in the United States and right. Jesse and I we had an hour podcast last week about what the benefits would be if everyone in America would meditate, like how would that change America in its entirety and and not only meditation, but when you add lucid dreaming into the mix and people are able to start doing that, the benefits it would have at, for the success, Man, I can't talk, the society that we live in and why is it that our education system isn't promoting
1: these types of practices? Yeah. What a great question, my friend. Yeah. You know, I mean, um, Tim Ryan, the Senator, um, Congressman from Ohio, you wrote a, a, a book a number of years ago, quite a fine book called Mindful Nation. I and mean, This is a congressman, for God's sakes, where he compiled in this book. I highly, highly recommend it. I know, Tim, he's a great guy. Um, talking about the extraordinary benefits to society if simply people just engage with, my, uh, with mindfulness meditation. And there's so much resistance to it uh, because people just don't know any better. It's, it's like, as unbelievable as it may seem, there is resistance to yoga, which is nothing but stretching um, because it's associated with, with um, Eastern traditions, which then means it's religious. It's not religious. You can make it a religious practice, but stretching is not religious. And so there, there are definitely <laughs> a lot of communities, states, that, that are fiercely resistant to something as beneficial and really neutral as yoga. Um, that to me is like unbelievable because again they they conflate yoga with eastern spirituality you know we're christian organization um, society we're not going there it's like really same thing with meditation you know meditation is associated with contemplative eastern traditions which is therefore associated with religion but it's the same thing with yoga i mean anybody that has a, a anybody who has a mind can meditate meditation is neutral Yes like a, like a technology it can be used for spiritual purposes for sure but um, it's a fundamentally neutral entity but because it is associated historically with contemplative traditions in in a, a society that is kind of phobic about these sorts of things there's resistance oh you you know you, you you talk about yoga you're bringing religion into the school no you're not you bring meditation you're talking you're bringing religion into the school no you're not what you tell me, what is religious, about paying attention to your breath? Where's the religion in that? Right. <laughs> I mean, give me a break. And so the benefits. I mean, you know, there are over seven thousand studies, at least, at least seven thousand studies, on the benefits of meditation, and more by the month, that that show its unbelievable um, applicability in this Western world. Um, to I mean, the, again, the benefits there are off the charts, and so. This is important to throw into the mix because um, meditation and lucidity are absolutely inextricably connected, and I think, again, when people understand and when the science comes into play, I, I, I can give you more of the science if you want that, substantiating scientifically, which is as secular and as you can get. That there are these unbelievable benefits to working with a nocturnal mind, the subtle uh, dreaming mind. There's so many benefits there. When people start to realize that, they'll realize, you know, why, why on earth are we not cultivating these practices in, in the Western world? And it's, it's, it's uh, to me uh, a, a large kind of a drawback with the blinders we have in the Western arena. And part of my work. Is to perhaps peel some of those blinders back i work with scientists all the time bringing in some data that they might be aware of from some of these contemplative traditions but i'm a huge fan of the scientific um approach to this because that's the vocabulary of the west and and you know in a certain way the they're the arbiters of truth in the western world so yeah something like that do you ever think that uh
2: at some points uh science will be able to reveal through like? evolutionary or whatever about why we even dream to begin with because oh, that yeah, within itself is just such a like why is this even happening or yeah like, well there's already, a there's mystery already, anyway pretty, but
1: there's pretty solid evidence for that right now and, and i can refer readers there's a lot of data but probably the best public book on this in recent years is matthew walker's why we sleep he's got some really interesting um solid research it's well written you know, we, it, it's used to um, consolidate memory. It's used to facilitate learning. It's used to digest um, experience. There's a lot of data now. And, and, you know, these scientists are pretty clever folks, you know, what they do with um, sleep deprivation. Um, there There's a lot of pretty solid evidence for why we do sleep and dream and the, again, the more people understand that, the, the more they'll realize the, the unbelievable importance of sleep altogether. And this is, harks back to what I said earlier about the incredible importance of good sleep hygiene, just really standard techniques. You know, I mean, could get it because if you don't sleep well, you're not going to dream well. If you don't dream well, there's no chance you're going to practice uh, lucid dreaming. So all these things build on each other. And so, therefore, understanding the science behind sleep, sleep cycles, these kind of standard, great contributions from the west super important um and then you can join that with some of these kind of eastern contemplative approaches and you know stuff starts to get really really interesting
2: have you ever done like a like an isolation tank before
1: oh for sure yeah yeah they're, they're called flotation tank sensory deprivation there's some yes
2: yeah, sen- yeah, yeah
1: yeah i have a friend who's done uh he you know he, he every single time he does a flotation thing he has a lucid dream um, but that's a little bit hard to replicate, because what are you going to do, put a flotation tank in everybody's house? <laughs> yeah, so um, I've also done sensory deprivation um, retreats, where I literally go into, into kind of blacked out environments, and, and that's, that's also been scientifically proven. And also in the, in the contemplative traditions, that's actually part of a practice, where sensory deprivation absolutely positively does heighten the internal dream arena. So that's another avenue, slightly more esoteric. But that's another strand for people who are interested in um, exploring all the different avenues. And and these things are cool. I mean, they're really fun. Flotation tanks, if you haven't experienced them, they're really pretty fun. Um, for some some people, absolutely helps with lucidity. When I did it, I didn't have a lucid dream that night. But when I've done sensory deprivation, absolutely positively enhanced my lucidity for sure.
0: Do you remember your first lucid dream? Do
1: I? Yeah. Oh. Oh, that's a good question. Um, You know, I don't remember my first one. I would have to really shake the cobwebs on that one because like I mentioned at the outset, I've had such a rich dream life as far back as I can remember. And like you said, uh, yeah, studies have also shown that that, um, roughly up until formal operational thinking around age seven, um, kids generally have more spontaneous lucid dreams than adults, and then in a certain way, like I mentioned earlier, they're actually trained out of lucidity, literally. Um, so I can't, uh, you know, off the top of my head, I keep a dream journal, but my dream journal doesn't go back to childhood, right? right? <laughs> so I, I can't tell you when I had my first. I one. got you. Probably sixty years ago, if I had to guess.
2: I remember the first. Well, I don't even like. I don't even know if this is considered a lucid dream. Uh, but I, I can't remember how old I was, like maybe eight, eight years old or something, but I remember getting scared in the middle of the night and going into my parents' room and sleeping on a couch that they had in there. And I just remember, uh, during the dream, I literally felt myself like almost like my soul floating up above me and then looking down at myself and then everything, like it was very almost kind of frightening experience and then everything turned into cubes and then just (laughs) rushed away and then I snap back into my body and then I woke up and I've remembered that to this day this very intense like legitimately feeling myself leave my body but seeing myself still sleeping and then just having this everything turns into like cubes and then just rushing away craziest craziest thing Yeah, haven't had anything like that since like but yeah it was a crazy dream for me
1: yeah, you know, they're, they're, there's some uh, really interesting data about the relationship of, of lucid dreams to what are called OBEs or out-of-body experiences. Um, and most of that, not all, because actually if you believe in this sort of thing, in Tibetan dream yoga, one of the more advanced stages of dream yoga is in fact the cultivation of what's called a special dream body, which can, you know, dissociate from the physical body. But um, some really clever philosophers, thinkers, psychologists, using some very interesting um, thinking and research, have shown that most what are called OBEs, out-of-body experiences, are actually hyperlucid dreams. And, and there are actually ways to test that. When you're, if, if you ever have one of these things again, when you're in that space, there are a number of things you can do when you're in it to see, hey, is this really a legitimate OBE or is just a, a hyperlucid dream? And I've had some of those myself, and most of the time, when I do the test, it, it turns out to be a hyperlucid dream. That doesn't in any way dismiss the, the OBE experience. But you know for a lot of people in the Western world, the minute you start talking about out-of-body stuff that usually uh, leaves the realm of credulity and believability, and people go, oh, that's just metaphysical mumbo jumbo um yeah in the western world it is but the western world again is just one particular way to look at mind and reality and the the great what are called polyphasic traditions it's very interesting there there are some four thousand cultures um roughly around the world and over 90 percent of those are polyphasic which means they honor altered states of consciousness like the dreaming arena just as much as the waking state it's only the eurocentric western monophasic, what, what's called wake-centric cultures, which is what we are. Wake-centricity means basically the only viable way to explore, to know, to experience mind and reality is in the waking state. Um, that's a wake-centric approach, and 90% of the world's cultures don't agree with that. They just say, that's why, why limit yourself? You know, you're limiting yourself to, to two other different states of consciousness that actually can be explored. The dream state, and then we haven't even talked about this, but actually cultivating lucidity in the deep dreamless state. That's called sleep yoga, connected to yoga nidra. That stuff is incredibly interesting. And so again, you know, the, the image I use here, both in terms of lucidity altogether, and also in terms of these, the spectrum of these nocturnal meditations is the following. Um, so imagine you're in a really brightly lit room, like you know, I'm in a pretty lit room, you guys are in a lit studio. So imagine just like turning all the lights on, super bright, we're hanging out, chatting, and we get tired with each other. Yeah, let's take a break. We step outside, pitch black. You know, when you first step outside, you can't see a thing, right? Your, your, your pupil is so constricted. You can't see anything. But it's a wonderful analogy. What happens? You just wait. You're patient. And guess what happens? Your, your eyes dilate. You start to see things that have always been there. But you haven't seen them before just because your awareness is so constricted. And so this is a wonderful analogy for, for these um, kind of uh, polycentric, polyphasic cultures versus ours is that once you open the aperture of your awareness, the lens of your mind, you start to see things that have always been there, but you've been too constricted in a certain way, blinded by the light to see them. And so this is, a, this is completely applicable to what happens in all these nocturnal practices. You know, The more you relax and open, you know, the more you start to see all these states of mind, they've always been there, but you just haven't seen them before. And so I'll, I'll toss this out to your listeners, and, and they're going to go, oh my gosh, you know, I was kind of with this guy until he said this. But again, according to the great wisdom traditions, in the minds of the realized, truly awakened beings on this planet, the great mystical um, figures of, the, of religious hidden spiritual history, they literally, not metaphorically, literally maintain a twenty-four-seven type of awareness, and so this is important to throw into the mix. And I've had uh, conversations with you know high-hitting neuroscientists on this topic. The Western world has a, a kind of a clunky light switch model of consciousness: you're either awake or asleep, dead or alive, yes, no, black, white, right? It, that's that's pretty crude. Um, in the East. They replace that Western light view model, you know, awake, asleep, dead alive, yes, no black, white with the dimmer. And so what happens with these really, and I can speak from my own experience, what happens with, um, these more subtle dimensions of mind and working with these practices is you replace the light switch with a dimmer. So you just go from gross to subtle to very subtle. So you just dim awareness. In the light, there's still a few photons of awareness that are on and, and there are now um, world-class neuroscientists in some of the leading universities and I'm in conversation with them, working to design studies to prove the radical proclamation that you can maintain lucidity in the deep dreamless space. There are scientists now, legitimate hardcore hitting scientists trying to substantiate this. This has been commonplace proclamation in the wisdom traditions for thousands of years. It just hasn't been proven yet. And so I throw this into the mix because, you know, the Western culture is pretty nearsighted, myopic, constricted. And you throw this in and most people go, oh my gosh, this guy's a nut. Or maybe go, people go, hey, wait a second. Can we just categorically dismiss 90% of the world's cultures? Can we categorically dismiss these wisdom traditions that say and assert that you can maintain awareness in these subtle states? It's just that the mind hasn't been trained to do that. So we can train the mind to do that. And you can bring these kind of mental Olympians into the labs and put them in the fMRIs and actually show, oh my gosh, this guy is totally awake in these extremely subtle dimensions of mind. And that's a game changer. I mean, that's why, you know, these scientists are now starting to really listen to these kind of mind masters. I would hope so, man. It's it's about time.
2: Well, any kind of religious backlash, I mean, even in the uh, like Judeo-Christian religion, I mean, didn't... Uh, it say verbatim that with David, God came to him in a dream, like he was in a Absolutely. dream state When Absolutely. whenever that took place. So, I mean, that's that's even in Christian religion pretty blatantly. And those those were big deals. I can't remember exactly. I'd have to re-look it up. But that was a pretty big deal, what was happening um, in those dream states that he was in and whatever information God was telling him at the time. I, I don't remember exactly what it was. But
1: And again, these are exactly these types of... Um, stories, actually, I don't think think they're 100% true, you will find variations of this literally in every world's religious tradition, you know, communication with with other dimensions of being, even with other um, entities and the like. Once you just lift up the hood and look underneath it, this is extremely commonplace. It's just, you know, for many people in the West, it may not be that commonplace yet. So you just have to look a little bit deeper and you'll be amazed You'll be amazed at what's already out there, you know.
0: I got a two-part question uh, just to go off what you were just saying. Um, Whenever you have, like you said, you had mental Olympians and stuff like that. Again, I want to break. I want to bring it down to people who really don't know what this is, because again, most of the population in America has no idea how to lucid dream. So, do you think, or within studies that you've seen, um, is there any? Is it harder for people the the more they get older for them to be able to do it? Um, So, let's say, like you said, you could you start at three or four or five. And you're able to do it, you don't know consciously, you don't know what it is, but your body knows. Your body knows that it can do it, but it, then it takes this 12-year break. And then, like I said, in my 20s, I'm like, wow, how right. did I never know what lucid dreaming was? You know, why didn't anyone ever tell me about this? Am I at a disadvantage at this point because it's been 12 years or 13 but, years since I've yeah, done it? Yeah,
1: good question, my friend. Yes and no. I mean, on one level, as we age, our sleep patterns age. We, we have a diminution, a decrease both in non-REM and REM sleep. And it's a a lot, this is so interesting, a lot of the factors that bring about aging is actually a loss of the restorative capacities of sleep. And so in that respect, as we get older, because we spend less time in non-REM and REM and more time in phase one sleep, yes, it does get a little bit harder. But one thing that can completely counteract that, it's not like, okay, I'm just not gonna do it. I don't have a chance. No, not at all. It's a little bit like saying, okay, you know, after I turn 50, is it going to be harder for me to run? Well, yeah, right, because you're getting older and your muscles and your tendons are not as flexible and your aerobic capacity is diminished, but does that mean you should stop running? No. So, um, biologically, yeah, there are a few uh, factors working against you, um, but if you, you can so easily counteract those with these other approaches, uh, cultivating intentionality, all these other techniques, And so that's really important because really anybody at any age can learn this. And when I do my programs, um, the vast majority of people that come to this training are, are, you know, 50 years and older. And within the course of a week, when I do my retreats, ah, I'd say 90% of the people will have a lucid dream by the end of that week. Um, And so what you say is true but it's not irrevocable you can absolutely positively at any age as long as you have a mind and as long as you sleep you have the capacity to learn this and if you counteract aging with things like meditation and there's some again sidebar studies the the people who meditate actually have the biological signatures of people 12 years younger than what they really are so um meditation actually slows the aging process And so in that regard, that's another, I keep throwing the meditation thing back into the mix, because if there is a secret um, sauce in this, if there is a secret ingredient that isn't touted so much in the lucid dreaming community, this is more the dream yoga contribution. It's the practice of, of working with your mind through mindfulness, through meditation. The importance of that cannot be overstated. So all the things you say can absolutely positively be counteracted. That's the
0: thing that just makes me so mad is that it's just not meditation isn't taught. And and again, we had an hour podcast last week and it just it, it's just something that's always frustrated me that in the Western culture, meditation. And now, I mean, you kind of put it best. It's people look at it as a religious aspect. And I think that, that I never thought that I never thought I was just never taught what meditation was. and And when I found out about it, it wasn't like a religious aspect. It was just like, hey, I want to try this out.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, fundamentally, there's literally there's nothing religious about meditation. Yes, you can use meditation for spiritual and religious purposes, for sure. But you know, it's it's really it's an incredibly neutral entity. It has nothing to do with religion or meditation.
2: It's Um, it's probably for a lot of uh, people who are against it, like a gateway religious thing. Like exactly what they said: you go, oh, you're starting to meditate. Well, you just wait a year from now. Next thing you know, you're going to be drinking the Kool-Aid yeah, the next or something stupid,
1: which it's is
2: completely ridiculous. But I mean, that's, that's probably where their mindset is kind of, kind of thing. But
1: unfortunately, I agree with you on that one. It's not true.
0: My second part yeah. question was, I don't, have you traveled to any of these, uh, Eastern societies or, you know, where they practice, uh, Hinduism or, um, these other types of ancient cultures or Buddha or anything like that? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, sorry, and sorry, one more thing. Oh, sure. Do you see something different in their society? because I don't know if there's a, a population where most of the people lucid dream. And could you tell a difference in like their awareness that you talk about?
1: Yeah, yeah, I, I've traveled a ton. I, I, I founded a, a foundation called Global Dental Relief some 20 years ago. So I, I've literally spent years in the East. Um, I worked at the American Embassy Clinic in Kathmandu. So I've spent a ton of time in, in dozens of countries in, in Asia. And so a couple of things here. Um, it's easy for us in the West to still kind of romanticize the East that, oh, yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're somehow more um, in tune with these sorts of things. On one level, that's true, and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you on those levels where that applies, but with globalization there, you know, unfortunately, there's some real sidebars, um, negative side effects to globalization. And so I think the distinction between East and the West is, is falling apart, and the, romanticiz- uh, the way we tend to romanticize the East, that, that doesn't really apply. However, if you go into monastic communities, if you go into like the high Himalayas of, of Tibet, for instance, where they still maintain these indigenous pockets of deep kind of contemplative approaches to reality, what we would know as, as Buddhist cultures like Tibet is or Bhutan, then yes, in in those sequestered arenas, for sure, there is magic in those communities. Um, Tibet and Bhutan in particular, I spend most most time there. Then indeed, they they have a more kind of cultural support system for these sorts of things. They have a completely different atmosphere where a lot of what we're talking about here that may be new in, in those communities is just axiomatic. In other words, it's just a given. And so in those pockets, for sure, those arenas, those little um, pockets of what I call sanity, absolutely positively, they have a higher likelihood of, of working with these sorts of, sorts of things and having high levels of success. But if you've ever been there, I mean, go to Bangkok, go to Delhi, go to you know any, major metropolis now in, in so-called Eastern countries. And they're as Westernized as anything here. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's, that's not always a good thing, right. right? No, not always a good thing.
0: And it just makes me want, yeah. I mean, I'm not saying, and I'd be curious to see what they're like, what, how long they live tell like I'm sure their average lifespans are higher than people who live in the Western world, their diet, their health, just all those things coupled man, just with the type of life that you live when you meditate and you're able to lucid dream i just think it's I, I don't know if that's like the ultimate way to live as a human being but being aware all the time or you know like it's just insane that you could like you said in your book like you can fall asleep and and, and like you said you you in a year you can have what like a month more of being yeah. awake being yeah. awake and just traveling throughout your dream and just bettering yourself as a person who wouldn't cool. sign up for that that's so crazy. so yeah, kind, like,
2: kind of what you're like maybe is it kind of like a keystone uh like life um. Uh, oh man, like, I don't want to call it a, not, not a hobby, but a practice. So a keystone practice that other things like branch out from there, like what you're talking about, like if you meditate, you're probably not going to McDonald's right after, you know, you <laughs> meditate, then you're probably more likely to do yoga. And if, you know, you, you know, and yeah. then it's kind of like this, uh, snowball effect maybe. So as far as it being a keystone, you know, practice in life, I could, you know, that's probably what it is, but
1: I I think so. Yeah. Because, um, Meditation puts you more in contact with your body. Again, med- meditation works with awareness. What doesn't benefit with more awareness? And meditation, first foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of body. And so when you become more aware, mindful, lucid to your body, the benefits are, are unbelievable because then you become more in contact with the planet, with the earth, with the ecosystems. And so you, you there's some really compelling arguments from anthropologists, scholars, and the like about one of the major reasons we're having such cataclysmic ecological crises around the world is we're, we're just so fundamentally disconnected from our own bodies. And so our Earth is, you could say, our body is our personal Earth. And so it's like you're saying um, that when one works with mind and body through these so-called contemplative practices, it cultivates awareness, it cultivates sensitivity, cultivates connection to the body, cultivates connection to others. And, and to the planet. And, and also, I, this also is very important um, in both a, a Sanskrit and Pali language, the word for mind and the word for heart is the same word, chitta. And so therefore, when we work with things like mindfulness, it's, it's also heartfulness. And so these practices, you know, they seem like, oh, this is like navel gazing, this is like mental gymnastics, this is just cerebral cognitive thing. Well, yeah, on one level it is. But authentic meditation is, is also very much working with your heart. And so this is really important because fundamentally then it's not this kind of narcissistic me improvement thing. It, it fundamentally connects you by connecting deeply to yourself, you find yourself connecting to others. And so from these practices is born things like empathy and tolerance and compassion and understanding. Um, and so as the mind expands and opens with these different technologies, so to speak, your heart does. And so, I mean, my goodness, what doesn't benefit from that? You know, you actually, there's a, a wonderful book that was written this, this uh, two years ago um, by a teacher. Uh, it's called In Love with the World. And it's, it's a really powerful story about this meditation master who leaves his thing and, you know, runs off on this four-year um, intense um, street retreat. And comes to the conclusion that, you know, the world is fundamentally made of love. It's a fantastically beautiful story. And, and I throw that in for people who may want some supplemental information about this. And also how this is not just this self-involved, self-improvement thing. It really is about learning how to open your heart to connect to all dimensions of mind and being and to connect to others. increase sensitivity to planet, to, to animals, to the environment. It, it, and again, it's, it's the, this what I call stealth help. Stealth help. There's more going on with this stuff than meets the eye. You know, you might be thinking that with your meditation or your lucid dreaming, you're just doing this. But when you're working with these practices, in a real way, you're working with the power of light. You know, a lucid dream is a lit dream. It's a dream when you're aware that you're dreaming. And light is is an amazingly powerful phenomena. I mean, it's so healing, it's so nurturing. And so by working with the light of the mind in this case, it's as nourishing as working with you know, uh, the, the light of the sun. And so I, I throw this in because it, it just connects us more deeply to the heart of these practices, that it's not just this cerebral thing. It's an affective, emotional thing that connects you to others and to the world. I, I think that's worth throwing into the mix. And,
0: and I wanted to mention that, sorry, um, because I think that's a very important uh, part that you just brought up. And the fact that the, the early stages of your book, you talk about Kind of like um, whenever you first start lucid dreaming, like you have the opportunity. It's like, hey, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Um, So whenever you're able to have a lucid dream, like you don't have to tell your partner, like I don't have to go upstairs and tell my wife, like, hey, like I had this really intense lucid dream where I controlled it and I did something I shouldn't have done. You know what I'm saying? Like it it stays with you. But at the same time, I think that that's um, inherently in us is our ego. So whenever you first start lucid dreaming, like your ego is going to be a big part of that. Because good you're going to start doing a lot of things that you probably
1: would always want to do, but you can't do in <laughs> real life. Well, th- that's actually a good point, my friend. I mean, this is one reason for the deeper listeners that, you know, the great psychologist Carl Jung, incredibly sophisticated thinker, incredibly sophisticated dreamer. He knew all about lucid dreaming, but he was reluctant to endorse it for exactly this reason. Um, and this is why I always situate lucid dreaming within the larger context of dream yoga. Because this is, this is a very interesting thing to say that whenever intention is involved, habits are created or in, in Eastern language, karma is created. And so therefore these practices, again, they work to restructure your brain and your very being. And that can be both a good and a bad thing, right? So if you're in your lucid dream and you're in, indulging you know, your wildest fantasies, right? In the sanctuary of your mind, well, that has effects. And it, it can be either positive or negative. And so, again, this is one of the things that differentiates lucid dreaming from dream yoga. Because in dream yoga, you work completely um, in a developmental way to cultivate good habits, to cultivate um, good karma. So that, again, what you're doing there is actually working in a very beneficial way. Because otherwise, you can indeed, you, you can use lucid dreaming as a you know, really cool virtual reality gig or a video game And, you know, that may be entertaining for a while, but, you know, if if you just want entertainment, go to the video arcade, right? Um, So I think that's important to throw in that there are both positive and negative repercussions to these types of practices. And that's why if you situate them properly and you harness them with a proper intention, they can be very, very beneficial. But otherwise, you know, they're they're just really, they're just high-level cognitive video games. And I don't, I'm not, categorically dismissing that. I'm just saying it's pretty limited. Um, and so that's why it's helpful to understand the vast array of different things that you can do outside of just mere lucidity and indulging your fantasies.
0: Right. That's just what the Western civilization teaches us is just to, you know, be about ourselves and want to be a part of that video game for, yeah, mo- for most right, people, right. you know, but um, there are some, like you said, deeper thinkers here in the West and people who want more and, and are searching and seeking for more. And, and that's what you're providing, man. That's awesome.
1: Yeah, I'm trying. Yeah, yeah, I'm trying.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, we're we're getting close to the top of the end of the hour. I know Jesse had a. a we have a, probably just a couple more lighthearted questions, kind of. Okay. You know. Yeah. Just-
2: yeah. This is how this is how I like to end it. I always try to come up with like something that's still on topic but kind of funny. How do you feel about the movie Inception? Or have you, if you haven't seen it, man, yeah. no, <laughs> no big deal. I had to ask you.
1: Yeah, no, I've seen it. Uh, yeah, here's the. It's okay. I mean, as a movie, it was like. Um, yeah, it was okay. I wouldn't say it's a barn burner, but here's where, where it, it's great. Um, first of all, I love Leonardo DiCaprio. Everybody loves yeah. <laughs> Um the, the good thing about a movie like that is, is the fact that it makes people aware of this possibility, even though it's framed within a science fiction thing. And by the way, we could talk about that movie, the types of dreams that are uh, included in that movie. are what's So called
0: Recur- have you had a dream within a dream? oh absolutely they're they're called recursive what i've I've done that before i have yes i've had a dream within a dream and i was like holy smokes it was nuts oh man
2: that's crazy yeah they're
1: they're really they're really uh, amazing experiences i've I've had uh they're called recursive dreaming recursive dreams Um, i've had three of those in other words uh, i wake up I'm, i'm dreaming i wake up i think i'm awake I realized later, oh my gosh, I'm still a dream. I've had that three layers. Um, I've had some of my friends have um, up to seven layers of recursive dreams. That's a lot. And again, there the, that's a really interesting topic because then then you start talking about the nature of reality. You know, Like, well, what's really here real because you think you're awake, but you're still sleeping. That in a spiritual sense, by the way, is what it means to be asleep in this sense. But to, back to the movie, um, I thought Inception was good in the sense that it made this topic more available to the public. Um, but you know, outside of that, I don't, I'm don't. i not into criticizing people or things. I thought it was a little limited, but it, as an entertainment thing and the fact that it gets people talking about lucid dreaming, that's fantastic.
2: Man, my mind's blown right now. I literally expected you to go, oh man, that whole movie's bullshit. That's none, none of that's real. <laughs> and you're like, oh, well, recursive dreaming's actually a thing. I've never heard of this. That Your answer yeah. blew my
1: mind. <laughs> On that one. yeah and so you know again you can you you can, you can have these experiences and when you do again like you've had them these are kind of game-changing experiences because you again you wake up from one of these puppies and it, it's like shaking the snow globe you know like wtf was that you know i mean what the heck and so that's where the stuff gets so interesting you know like i said earlier in our, our conversation we are literally sleeping, sitting on top of this amazing natural resource every night that's untapped. And that's the mind and its unconscious processes. And here's another reason this, this stuff is so powerful and helpful to work with. Um, biologists, neuroscientists, and the like have shown, and this is a really humbling um, proclamation from the neuroscientific community, that at least, minimum, minimum 95% of what we do is dictated by unconscious processes. I mean, that is a tremendously humbling comment. Most of what we do is, ta- is taking place at unconscious levels and where these is like Christ said, you know, forgive them father for they know not what they do. And so um, the really fantastic thing about lucid dreaming and its supplemental supportive practices is again, like I said at the outset, it's a hybrid state of consciousness where the conscious mind can actually face the unconscious mind directly. And part of what takes place in, in profound psychospiritual growth is in fact, bringing these unconscious psychological processes into the light of conscious awareness, where then you can be free of them. And if we don't do that, we, we spend our lives, this is what it means to be um, non lucid in the deepest sense. That we think we're running our lives. We think we know what we're doing. We think we're making conscious decisions, but we're not. We're just not. Robots. It may seem that way, just like we, when you're in a dream, right? That dream seems so bloody real, especially when you're in a nightmare. That's what creates the nightmare. Man, this is so bloody real. It's not real. It's just your unconscious mind being played out. You're mistaking it to be real. And so this is, again, the genius of things like lucid dreaming, that you start to bring all these unconscious processes into the light of consciousness, and then you're free of them. You're liberated. You're no longer buffeted around by the whims of your unconscious mind. Um, and that's no small thing, that's really liberation, and that's again why I, I emphasize lucid dreaming leads to lucid living. It helps you wake up to this, that's process huge, man.
2: Man, right that's now. fascinating. That yeah. really is, yeah, that
0: is some fascinating stuff, man. Um, so I, I mean, I'll, I'll end it with this. I have a two quick, sure. two quick questions, um, and thank you so much for coming on, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Um, so my wife, uh, we have two daughters, a three year old, almost four, and a, a two year old. In her sleep, man, she co sleep, or we co sleep. And um, I feel so bad for her because having this type of conversation, I don't know if you have any type of practices where that would be an option for her because the kids don't really sleep all the way through the night. She still breastfeeds. So I'm just kind of curious if there's any type of tips or tricks you have for women who are co sleeping with children.
1: Oh, you're talking, so you're talking about more about your wife, not your kids? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh geez, you know, <laughs> yeah. The, the, um, the most important thing, obviously, is doing whatever you can to get as much natural rest and sleep as you can. That that may seem like really obvious, right? That's actually really important, right? Um, and so, in that respect, the only advice I would have, and I think I riff about this in the book. In fact, I know I do. Is is really looking over, reading about the classic tips and tricks for good sleep hygiene. Um, I wouldn't terribly worry at, the, at this point um, to insert things like lucid dreaming in within that type of framework. If it happens, great. That's fantastic. But when you're just basically kind of struggling or trying to get a good night's rest, I would make that the priority. Right. And then if lucid dreams come, fantastic. But right now, throwing yet another thing into that sort of mix when the most important thing is just getting you good restorative sleep. That's the most important. So what I would really recommend is just understanding the basics of good sleep hygiene, what what to what to nurture, what to avoid. Um, and then therefore, you know, try to cultivate as much of a restorative night sleep as you can, augmenting that, you know, if you're a little bit more um, academically or scientifically oriented with books like Why, Why We Sleep by uh, Matthew Walker. Because then, what it does is it just it, it reinstates the incredible importance of sleep altogether. I mean, you will die from lack of sleep before you die from hunger. Um, no, I, I mean the other way around. It, 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 sleep is incredibly important. The the shorter you sleep, the less you will live. Uh, literally, it's not you. You know, you snooze, you lose. No, it's you don't snooze, you lose. Right. <laughs> so the more you can just maintain good sleep hygiene and good sleep integrity, that's by far the most important thing. And then I would just come back and visit this stuff a little bit later when things are a little bit more settled on schedule, then you can come back and insert this. But you, ha- you have to have that infrastructure in place and just maintaining good sleep is obviously super important.
0: For sure. And uh, my last question, my man, is what are you going to lucid dream about tonight? Ha <laughs>
1: ha! Yeah. Well, you know, in, in the world of, uh, again, I, I do more dream yoga than lucid dreaming. So lucid okay. dreaming is a platform into dream yoga. And so, you know, the really cool thing about dream yoga is there's a whole array of practices. And in my first book on this topic, I list nine different stages of practice. And so what I will do is, is you know, a lot of it will depend on how lucid I am. So if I, if I have a lucid dream tonight, and chances are good I will, I'll wake up and it's like, oh, this is a really strong, wow, I'm really lucid tonight. Because I've been doing this for so long, I'll, I'll go to some of the more advanced stages of dream yoga. Um, and do one of those things. And if it's a little bit more like, ah, I'm sort of lucid, but not that much, then I, sometimes I just have fun. You know, I'll, I'll just like, hey, I, I love to fly. So I'll take off and just like soar around like a, a, a fighter jet through the Grand Canyon and just have a gas of a time. So, one way or the other, I'll have fun. Um, and if I don't have a lucid dream, that doesn't wake me out at all. I'll get a good night's rest. But, you know, one way or the other, um, my relationship to my sleep is, is, is precious, it's treasured. I realize every night I have amazing opportunities to do all sorts of things. And that alone just completely recontextualizes and reframes the way I I relate to my sleep and makes it a really treasured, precious opportunity. So I'll get back to you and let you know what happens tonight. All right, (laughs) (laughs) Lance.
0: Well, where can people find you? Where can they find your book? I know you have a YouTube channel. We'll put all that in the links uh, below, but just tell us real quick as well. Yeah,
1: thank you so much. Well, you know, probably the best way, uh, I have two websites the the big one on this topic we launched it two years ago it's called literally called night club it was an a, 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 a online platform that we started at the request of students because i've been teaching this stuff for decades to basically provide support on all this so Night Club has we offer interviews webinars i interview some of the leading authorities in the world on this topic scientists philosophers authors thinkers you name it um, that's a very active international community that supports this and then I have my main site, andrewholacek.com, H-O-L-E-C-E-K. And that's where I have more, more of my um, traditional uh, uh, kind of riff on the topics that I write about. But yeah, I, I appreciate the opportunity to plug that. I, you know, Two books came out this year. I'm constantly writing, doing more things, teaching on that sort of thing. I'm, I'm always actively involved in online programs and courses. So if people go to those sites and something resonates with them, they'll find their way to some other support avenues. But it's important to throw that in because you know the these nocturnal practices, meditation altogether, it's a solitary adventure. But it doesn't mean you know you have to walk this alone. There are um, thousands of people. Um, you know we have three thousand people in this community. It's super active dream sharing, meditation groups, discussion groups, book study groups. So where like-minded people can get together and realize you're not the only weirdo in town, there are other <laughs> weirdos around the world doing this kind of thing, and that sense of community. I have to say, it's been a really beautiful surprise. You know, we really support each other, and um, that sense of um, community is just really important. So, thanks for the opportunity, you guys. I've enjoyed your good questions. It's great to hang out with you, and uh, yeah, let's do it again sometime. For
0: awesome. sure. No, thanks for coming on Talk Junkies, sir, and. Uh... Your community is only going to grow, my man, um, it, it, especially if Ford gets out about um, how you do it and your books are, are fascinating and we're, we're going to promote it hundred percent. So thank Appreciate you, Andrew, it. for coming on the show.
1: Thanks guys. All yeah. the best to you. Take care. You too. you
0: too. Gentlemen right there for joining Talk Junkies. That was a great podcast there with uh, Andrew. Um, you could check his books out here. We'll have the links in the description below. He told you a few websites. Those will also be in the description below where you can find uh, his work at and his community. Um, so the best thing you can do for this video is share it, like it, and to all our junkies out there, stay fly and ring the bell.